She's the Novartis Professor of Leadership and Management at the Harvard Business School, where she teaches and writes on leadership, teams, and organizational learning. Her books, Teaming, How Organizations Learn, Innovate, and Compete in the Knowledge Economy, and Teaming to Innovate, explore teamwork in dynamic, unpredictable work environments. Her most recent book, The Fearless Organization, Creating Psychological Safety in the Workplace for Learning, Innovation, and Growth, is the winner of the Thinkers 50 Breakthrough Idea Award and offers practical guidance for teams and organizations who are serious about success in the modern economy. She's been ranked by the biannual Thinkers 50 global list of the top management thinkers since 2011, most recently number three, and selected in 2019 as the number one most influential thinker in human resources by HR Magazine. Before her academic career, she was director of research at Picos River Learning Centers, where she worked on transformational change in large companies. In the early 1980s, she worked as chief engineer for architect inventor Buckminster Fuller. She received her PhD in organizational behavior, AM in psychology, and AB in engineering and design, all from Harvard University. Join me on this episode of the Curvebenders podcast with Amy Edmondson. Hi there, this is David Knorr, host of the Curvebenders podcast. I'm excited to share insights with you at the intersection of the future of work and strategic relationships. Make no mistake about it, there are a number of forces in the next two decades that will dramatically change the way we live, the way we work, the way we play, and the way we serve others. And I believe there are these relationships that will come into our lives that can change both the direction and destination of where we're headed. Those are the individuals I call curvebenders. So in each episode, I want to share with you insights from our research, from our interviews of great guests and their incredible experiences. I want to invite people to share their ideas and examples of not just coaches and mentors, but real curvebenders that have had a profound impact on their lives. Specifically, we're going to talk about pragmatic ideas in the evolution of your skills, your knowledge, and your behaviors. So let's get started. Curvebender's book, Chapter 1, Work-Life Blending, Alignment of the Corporate Strategy with Your Personal Aspirations. I've long believed that relationships go bad with misaligned expectations. Your Curvebender's roadmap will be heavily influenced by your organization's strategy and prioritized pursuits. As such, it will be critical to create alignment between the two early and often. Otherwise, frustration and resentment will build and become omnipresent in how you often show up for various interactions. In my executive coaching, I found this misalignment to be the single biggest source of the proverbial chip on an executive's shoulder. It's also challenging to achieve any meaningful personal goals if the two are not in sync with your organization's vision and the path to get there. In a small organization, it's easy to know what everyone else is doing and why. But as the organization scales and matures in size and structure, several attributes become essential. Number one, succinct vision and a path to get there. Others can't follow you if they don't understand where the ship is headed. 
the best leaders create a clearly articulated vision and a set of prioritized pursuits. Number two, align your aspirations with your leader's goals. Two challenges here. If you're pursuing a path that may be important to the organization, but for whatever reason isn't one of the stated priorities and your leader's goals, it's time to have a conversation with your leader and add it to the list. It's crucial that you speak up and voice that issue early on. Similarly, if you're assigned a path that isn't on the organization's priority list or your leader's goals, you need to have a conversation with your leader to ensure the investment of time, effort, and resources you're making are prudent. Number three, your personal and professional aspirations need milestones. To advance in a purposeful way toward your future aspirations, you need a baseline and a yardstick of critical milestones. I found a cadence to revisit your progress with an independent sounding board particularly helpful. It is critical that you're candid and open to change when your aspirations no longer align with the organization's strategy and the path forward. Two immediate options are available to you. One, you can learn from the experience and realign your aspirations. Or two, move on to another role, part of the organization, or another organization altogether that's aligned with where you're aiming to go. It's challenging to come to terms with that misalignment. Though we try to justify it, if where you want to go personally isn't on the organization's radar, it isn't a sign of failure or weakness to move on. Read the rest of this excerpt from my journey in writing the Curvebenders book in our private, free online community, NOR Forum. Learn more at norgroup.com slash forum. Welcome back to the Curvebenders podcast. My guest today is Dr. Amy Edmondson. I have to tell you, I first learned about Amy probably a decade or so ago and included some really fascinating reference to her research on this uh, spectrum of failure that I found fascinating. And I included it in, in one of my books. And serendipitously, uh, we met at Thinkers 50 and through the whole Marshall Goldsmith community, we've gotten to know each other. So Amy, welcome to the Curvebenders podcast. Nora, thanks for having me. It's great to have you. For those who may not know as much about your work at Harvard and an incredibly fascinating background, can you just talk for a couple of minutes about where you've been, what you've done, and how you've arrived here? I came back to Harvard about 30 years ago to pursue a PhD in organizational behavior. And at the time, I had been working for 10 years, uh, first as an engineer and then in organizational consulting. And, and that latter experience, of course, is what led me to want to get smarter and get, you know, get, get more able uh, to do the work I was beginning to love. And so I, I applied to and, and, and went to a PhD program at Harvard in organizational behavior and then ended up uh, staying at Harvard and, and joining the faculty across the river at the business school about 24 years ago. That's not a common, or is it a common path for engineering <laughs> to go from that to, to organizational behavior? What made you want to make the, make the leap? Well, I think what we have in common is what, what the fields have in common is the desire to solve problems and the, the desire to, uh, to fix things and to be analytical about it, uh, and also problem oriented about it. And meaning it's, it's really about 
how do you make the world a better place? So uh, your most recent book, The Fearless Organization, I want to get to that and creating psychological safety in a workplace environment uh, in a second. And I'm, and I'm fascinated by kind of what, again, what uh, you learned in your research and writing that book and your work since then. But Amy, I have to ask you, you know, we're recording this amidst of this uh, you know, co-19 global pandemic, what are you seeing? What are you hearing in your discussions with executives about what they're struggling with out there? Well, I, I think people are struggling on, on a couple of parallel planes, uh, very different, but both tightly related to the COVID crisis. Um, and one is, of course, the, the practicalities of, of virtual work and how do you, uh, in, engage your team and how do you help people kind of cope with the new normal of working from a distance? And that's both a, a logistical challenge and a psychological challenge, I think. But, but meanwhile, there's the, there's the broader issue of coping with just remarkably challenging uncertainty and and grief and and concern about what's going to happen what's going to happen with the economy what's going to happen with health um you know how many people will will lose their lives um it's just a kind of it, it, it's almost um i think it's almost doubly painful to be grappling with the mechanics of virtual work while also continually going back to why it is we're doing that i mean what the what the trigger was that is leading us to have to do this which is so much bigger than all of us and and so painful to contemplate are you are you seeing as much uh, discussion in with leaders on both managing the current crisis as well as thinking about this post co19 recovery rebound because the executives I'm talking to are, are, are certainly see a you know other side of this. None of us know when, but there are there are planning for the other side. Are you seeing the same? And what is that? Absolutely, like? and and of course uh, the reality is no one knows. Um, I think one of the big and interesting questions that that people are discussing is the question of what will stay the same and what will change as a result of this experience. Uh, for for instance, and again, in on the the more mundane level, will it start to be the case that uh, people who work in offices might work at home a day or two a week? I, I mean, I think none of us want to do this indefinitely forever because it's, um, you know, it's a little bit lonely and it's um, our, 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 our desk spaces don't tend to be as good and there's too much going on in our vicinity to be, to be quite as focused. And the collaboration is, is just more challenging. Um, but that said, many people are discovering the time back in their day that isn't devoted to long commutes um, or the ability to focus on the kind of work that does need to be done alone, like writing a report and, and done, you know, done with focus and done with care. So um, I, I'm sure we'll come out of this with some new discussion about when and for what does it make sense to go in and work face-to-face and when and for what does it make sense uh, to be working at a distance and 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 sort of it'll be a new challenge of figuring out and not just assuming that everybody's at work five days a week um, as we were before so that's just that's one of the more kind of I guess logistical issues but but more broadly entire industries are at risk of 
irreversible changes? Um, will we, given what we have learned about some of the things that are possible to do, like board meetings and, and even, you know, certain learning sessions and, you know, um, leadership development sessions, what will be our, our appetite and tolerance for travel going forward? Will that be drastically lower? Will, will consultants be less likely to be called into the client offices when for, for short meetings or simple things that everyone now realizes can be done at a distance? Like many of our uh, contemporaries and colleagues in, in higher ed, you've had to pivot, you know, with Harvard's you know, campus shutting down, you've had to pivot online. Any interesting surprises for you in kind of teaching remotely? Because as you talked about, it's difficult to teach cases that engage students that way. I suppose the biggest surprise for me has been just how extraordinarily willing and and um, I'd say productive the students have been. I mean, this is not what they wanted. This is not what anybody wanted, but they've been game. They've been, you know, I think they've been, um, just remarkably good natured about, about this. They're not, they're not complaining. It's, it's clearly not as good an experience, uh, compared to our, our tiered classrooms where we can see and feel the emotion and it's very lively and dynamic. Um, and, you know, you don't have to have mechanical hand raising and, um, muting and unmuting and all of those things that, that, um, introduce additional friction into the discussion. But they've, they've been, you know, they've just been terrific and appreciative of all the effort that it's taken, I think, for the school and for the faculty uh, to, to shift everything online virtually overnight. So switch gears with me and let's talk about your, your most recent book, The Fearless Organization, Creating Psychological Safety in the Workplace for Learning, Innovation and Growth. How apropos that it recently came out and talk about some of the highlights of the book, if you could, and their relevance to this this new working from home you know leading remote teams how do you create that psychological safety remotely sure it's i think you're absolutely spot on that it's incredibly relevant for what we're going through today um and in part because what we're going through today is bringing you know a lot of anxiety and and certainly a lot of um worry about uh, job security and people uh, concerned maybe more than ever about what their colleagues and what their managers are thinking of them. And the essence of psychological safety is the lack of that excessive concern. And, and let me put that more positively. You know, psychological safety is a, is a belief that my colleagues, my managers are absolutely expect candor from me. They expect me to speak up with my ideas, my concerns, my questions. And, and that's how, that's how we solve tough problems. That's how we innovate. That's how we collaborate effectively. Right. And in workplaces where psychological safety is missing, people are reading the tea leaves before they figure out whether or not they, they can or should contribute. And so uh, a great deal of important content or potentially important content is held back in non-safe, non-psychologically safe workplaces. Now, in the, in the present situation, 
psychological safety, you can almost assume it's missing and realize that you have to go out of your way uh, to be more conscious of what people are up against of their of the of the need to proactively engage them and 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 reassure people that we're we're just as interested in what you have to offer as ever there's the blurring line between our professional roles and personal obligations right so overnight we've all become teachers and IT tech support and experimental chefs right and and I've got kids at home and I'm you know suddenly solving zoom problems as I am by the way I also have to attend a board meeting right right does that does that increase that that psychological angst of you know good god the dogs or the kids drum you know jumping yeah. in with mom and, right, and 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 meanwhile i still have obligations and fiduciary responsibilities to run a team and get the work done yes and i i think i think that's so true especially because mo- most of us are spending uh large portions of our day as you say doing things we're not expert in whether it's being the it person uh the you know the uh, the chief cook or um, a tutor uh, to our children. So, you know, these are all things that are not our normal day job and, and we may not, you know, we're not experts and we may feel very inadequate indeed. And that's not a comfortable feeling for sure. So you said, you know, assume it's not there, go out of your way to reassure them. Can you give our listeners some ideas, some examples of what remote team leaders could do and what I'm hearing is maybe at the onset of the Zoom meeting or onset of the group collaboration of, okay, today we're going to cover this. How do you how do you set the stage without it feeling either uncomfortable or weird or or out of out of context? Well, I think it is important with virtual work when people are working from their homes to do a very quick check-in. Uh, we just you just need to know um, first and foremost whether people have very, you know, serious or distracting challenges on their, on their plate at that moment, right? because you need, you need people to uh, be able to focus and engage. And if it's, if it's not a good time or if um, maybe you don't want to go straight to them for some issue because you, it turns out they have um, a two-year-old having a tantrum in the other room, it's just good to know that, right? So, so that kind of very quick check-in. Um, unlike normal meetings in the office, we should just get right into it. We have to sort of just, um, hey, what's up for you? And just, just super quick, like, you know, go around. Um, with, with that said, um, I think some of the things that leaders need to do from afar as well as from up close is emphasize and talk about far more than you think is, is needed purpose and uncertainty. Now, those are two very different things, but I, I think the degree to which leaders are constantly coming back as a kind of anchor to the purpose of what we do, why it matters, you know, why it matters to customers, why it matters to the world. That's just, it's inspiring, it's engaging, it's clarifying, it helps us get on the same page and sort of feel good about what we're doing again. And I think that matters because it takes the focus away from ourself and onto the, onto the joint purpose, onto the shared purpose. Um, and the second thing is to emphasize the either uncertainty or challenge or both of what we're up against. I mean, just calling attention to the fact that you know what they already know, but that you recognize it. You know, you recognize that this uncertainty is 
is hard to live with, uh, that it means that none of us have a clear line of sight. Having said that, that sets a profound rationale for voice, right? That, that says to people, uh, not only are we willing to hear from you, we actually need to hear from you because none of us has a crystal ball. None of us has all the answers. So you need to speak up. Even if you're not quite sure it's important, please speak up. It's it's mission critical. I had a great conversation with uh, Roger Martin, whom we both know yes. and, and, and admire. And, and he commented how uncertainty and risk is not 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 a not a good <laughs> ingredient for the market and confidence. And do you ever fear that talking about that uncertainty and talking about that, listen, none of us know what the other side of this looks like, creates even greater angst with people? Or you believe it actually calms them to say, I want to jump in? Yes, because I think they already know it. They just don't know that you know it, right? And if you're acting um, inadvertently as if all is well, we have our blueprint, we're going to execute to spec, you are inadvertently, not deliberately, sending the message that I don't want to hear from you. Right? So it's it's sort of the elephant in the room anyway, and you've got to indicate that the elephant in the room is discussable. And really give him that uh, permission. Exactly. To, it's all to, about permission. I've always said to my colleagues, friends, I learn as much about my books after they come out. <laughs> Because people read them, they discuss them, they they object, they push back on certain ideas. Are there ideas in uh, fearless organization, or maybe even your previous one, teaming, how organizations learn, innovate, compete in knowledge economy, um, that twofold reinforce what you wrote about or refute it? I think that it's a it's a wonderful question because you're right. It, it's in in the process of hearing from people and in the process of talking with them about what they heard. Um, I do learn more for sure, and sometimes I, I I find that people they can say things better than I did. Uh, for instance, I think it's um, I haven't in either case, and maybe it's because of the nature of what I'm writing about, I, I haven't encountered anything that I would say is refuting, um, but more elaborating and clarifying and showing better versions, more practical versions of what I've written about. So for example, in teaming, um, I wrote about teaming because um, constant refrain about teams seemed to me to neglect the modern reality of teamwork, which is that an awful lot of it is coordinating and collaborating with different people at different times, as opposed to putting together your team. That's your team. It's, you know, it's fairly stable. It works together over a long period of time, gets to know each other, which by the way is still a, a an ideal when you, when and or for what you can have that by all means do. Right. So I imagine many of your listeners um, have with PL responsibility, they have a team and that team is fairly stable and 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 hopefully well composed and, and uh, well engaged in the work. And in the execution of what they do, the chances are very high that 
some of the some of the teamwork that's needed is not happening in stable teams. You know, so I wrote that premise, I illustrated it, I illustrated it with lots of examples from healthcare delivery and other industries, but what I've learned in the in the 8 years or so since it was published um is the existence of many many more and many richer examples of how that how that dynamic teamwork takes place. So that's one you know that that's one reaction and the the psychological safety has been first of all i've just been blown away by how much the book has resonated with different people in different industries you know that they've just said it influenced them it hit them it made them it gave them terminology for things they already understood and then meanwhile i've also had to correct misconceptions that are out there like, oh, you're just talking about being nice. Well, you know, I'm not in favor of being mean, to be sure. Uh, but no, psychological safety is not about being nice, right? Because it's really, it's about being candid and caring, uh, but, uh, but risk taking and, and being willing to confront our imperfections and being willing to confront error and mistakes and all of that not fun stuff. I have to ask you your opinion on uh, radical candor. Is there is there a point where candor becomes, I mean, at some point we lose our judgment and we kind yes. of go overboard? Yes. Yes. No, I love the book Radical Candor, by the way, Kim Scott. I think it's terrific work. Uh, so I would say we're what we, what both of us w- would agree is we need to draw the line somewhere uh, quite shy of brutality brutal candor, because brutal candor implies a, a kind of almost cruelty um, and and uh, almost an arrogance in saying what I believe or my reality is reality itself. And, and you know, when we feel the need to be brutal, um, I think we're losing our humanity. We're losing our, our, our compassion. So I like, you know, radical candor is a great term, but really what, what, and you said it before, it's caring candor. And and the reason I like that way of putting it is because it recognizes that what we need to do and what I'm going to now try to do is not easy. And I'm going to try to do it in the most humane and caring way. But I've got, I've got to also recognize that I'm, I'm going to get some of it wrong. I'm going to make mistakes. And so I'm going to need you to be candid in return and tell me where I might be missing something. We, you and I spoke about curve benders at this nexus of future of work and strategic relationships. And as you may recall, the premise is, you know, we've identified 15 forces in the next, you know, two decades that including the current black swan event that we believe are going to have a dramatic impact in the way we live, work, play, and give to remain relevant. You have to be on this learning curve, professional, personal growth, and certain relationships come into our lives that dramatically, Amy, change the direction and destination of where we're going and where we're headed and, and how we get there. Can you think of some curve-bending relationships in your life that not just have contributed to what you've accomplished, but who you've become? Who's profoundly shaped your life? One or two examples. The first one that comes to mind is uh, Buckminster Fuller, um, whom, if your listeners don't know of him, he was a great uh, American inventor, visionary, futurist, educator, best known perhaps for the invention of the geodesic dome. Um, but uh, I had the good fortune to work with, with Bucky Fuller 
right out of college. I wrote him a letter, which was a sort of a crazy, slightly courageous, but really what did I have to lose, uh, thing to do as a, as a 20 year old. And, and to my total surprise, he wrote back. I didn't really expect him to write back. I just wanted to get these thoughts off my chest. And he wrote back and offered me a job. So, um, but what, what, um, and of course that bent my, my curve uh, profoundly because it allowed me to step onto a a larger stage in terms of people who meeting and connecting with people who were thinking deeply about the future and about the you know what 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 human beings um, could do and needed to do to keep building a better world and um, but probably what made it so powerful for me was that that uh, Bucky Fuller, who at the time was in his uh, late 80s, um, treated me in my early 20s as if I had a perfect right to be there um, and had as much to offer as the next person. He trusted me with some of his very important um, blueprints and and calculations and R&D work. And um, it was just an astonishing privilege um, to be trusted in that way, but also to have work that at the time I considered meaningful and important and challenging to do. So it gave me great, I don't know, confidence that there might be a possibility I could, uh, you know, do something that mattered with my work life um, then and going forward. So you might have a future in this whole education and impact <laughs> on other people. Right, right. And I didn't know what it would, you know, how it would take shape or what it would look like. But um I, I, I began to think in terms of possibility uh, and, and openness. You know, if you remain sort of curious and, and open to the various connections that you make in various uh, settings, um, you can then be open to navigating a path that life has in, in, in store for you that you might not have, you know, figured out on your own. Is it fair to characterize curve benders as people that see a better or potentially the best version of ourselves? Yes. I, I think that's characteristic of, of curve benders is that they see something in you you don't necessarily see in yourself. And they give you a, a chance to see it or a chance to recognize it or a chance to put it to use. What do you believe, to build on the last comment, it takes to become a curve bender? So, Amy, in the uh, hundreds, if not thousands of lives you've been able to touch in your teaching, in your walks of life, uh, what do you believe are some of those traits that that profoundly, not, not just a great coach or a great boss or mentor, but profoundly change someone else's direction and destination? I think three things, humility, curiosity, and empathy. Now, those are beautiful words that encompass a great deal more. Um, and so uh, humility in particular needs elaboration. And I'm, I'm quite influenced by Ed Shine's work on humble inquiry. And I, and, and I think there's this notion of situational humility. So don't confuse humility with false modesty. Humility is the wisdom to recognize that you don't know anything. I mean, you don't, sorry, you don't know everything. You know some things, of course. But if, if I am able, you know, I think people who are able to sort of own what they do know and own their strengths and remain humble about what they don't know. And of course, 
primarily about what lies ahead, since none of us know that, um, they are then well positioned to be available um, for others. Right? They're they're more accessible. They're more um, they're more willing to describe what they see, meaning including the uncertainty of what they see, which is naturally engaging others. Um, but curiosity is the second one, and that's just so important and and so big a part of being human, but one that we can easily lose track of, um, especially as you get more expert in something. But curiosity is just that constant awareness that uh, there's a lot of valuable stuff um, uh, that others bring a lot of a lot of things that you can learn from others and so then with curiosity you are naturally triggered to ask questions and when you ask questions you learn stuff and the third thing is empathy uh because you've got to be able and willing uh to kind of appreciate what others might be up against and able and willing to take a deep breath uh before you respond to bad news for example um in in an inhibitory way. Those are fantastic. So um, what a what a what an incredible high to to go out on. So for those who want to learn more about you, your work and get in touch, what's the best way to do that? Well, my uh, my website at Harvard Business School is if each faculty member has a faculty page. So go to hbs.edu and and look up Amy Edmondson, find a list of my my books, my current uh, activities, and and so forth. For people who are interested in measuring psychological safety, you can go to something called the Fearless Organization Scan, which is also a website, and just um, for free uh, get a quick uh, measure um, of 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 your own work situation um, and or um, you can um, engage them to do it for your team. So that's a um, that's another resource. Amy, this has been delightful. Thanks for making the time. Thank you for the gift of your both time and insights. And, and what a fascinating uh, journey to really think about uh, psychological safety. I love that comment. Not as just this is not about being nice. This is about really creating an environment where others feel comfortable, they feel confident, they feel that they can contribute and that contribution matters. Thanks for being a guest on uh, on our Curve Benders podcast. Thanks for having me. If you've listened to the Curve Benders podcast for a few episodes, you know that I'm writing the Curve Benders book on why strategic relationships will power your nonlinear growth in the future of work. This will be book number 11 with tools, ideas, insights, case studies, great interviews like the one you heard today. In essence, what you need to create a personal and professional growth roadmap in your future of work. I'm excited to begin sharing key sections with the members of our NOR forum community. So go to norgroup.com slash forum and check out the Curve Benders thread for more details. I hope you enjoyed this episode of the Curve Benders podcast with Amy Edmondson. Three comments Amy made during our interview really resonated with me. Number one, for leaders to assume that psychological safety is missing amidst this COVID-19 global pandemic and really be intentional and go out of your way to emphasize purpose and uncertainty. 
people need to continuously understand why are we doing certain things and the fact that none of us have had answers and we're going to do the best that we can with circumstances that we can control. Number two, the profound rationale for voice, hence the title of this episode, you the willingness and the need for people to hear from you. I think it's really important when we physically can't be together to go out of your way to engage, to really reach out to folks one-on-one, one-to-few, one-to-many, and be really present in their lives as that bolster, as that supportive servant leader in the goals, in the milestones they're trying to achieve, accomplish, reach. Number three, becoming a curve bender. I love her description of humility, of curiosity, of empathy, right? So, the wisdom to recognize that you don't know everything and uh, what you, you know, building on what you know uh, and really leveraging that humility to continue to learn. Uh, your curiosity, right? How we lose track uh, of that with additional expertise. So constantly being aware and uh, really seeing value in insights from others. And of course, the empathy. Uh, it is really difficult with all the anxiety that we have in our world today, right? Between work and kids back in school and lack of travel as human beings, we're tactile. The fact that we can't uh, reach out to others and touch them. I'm a hugger. It's really hard when you can't hug the people that you interact with. So uh, those simple yet profound attributes are some of the things that make us incredible curve benders in the lives of others. Again, humility, curiosity, and empathy. Don't forget, I turned the show notes from these podcasts into more in-depth articles. So check them out in our free member-based community, what's growing fabulously called the NOR Forum. Join us at norgroup.com slash forum. I'm so thankful for our listeners on the Curvebenders podcast. I want to keep producing great content most beneficial to your personal and professional growth in this idea of future of work. So I'd love to hear your feedback. Don't forget to follow us on the various social media channels. I'm on Twitter. I'm on Instagram. I'm on LinkedIn. And I'm using the hashtag Curvebenders podcast. So make sure you follow that for all of our latest updates. 